All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Yeah, I'm here now. Yep. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay. Oh, it's all right. Great. Okay. Well, we've had some technical problems there. Yes, I am uh, the host, uh, Jay Taylor. Um, welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Um, again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America business uh, channel. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show. They are Merrick's Gold, Legend Gold, and Rye Patch Gold. Well, we just heard from Dick Beauvais. Uh, he really seemed to have changed his views in the markets uh, over the last uh, several weeks. Uh, from his July 27th, the sky is falling remarks on CNBC, he told uh, people that they should sell everything in sight, and then he uh, turned uh, fairly positive on, on some of the bank stocks uh, later than that. Uh, so, Justin, I'm wondering, uh, can you play Dick Beauvais' uh, July 27th remarks? We, we have Bob Hoy with us. Uh, I want to play Dick Beauvais' remarks, and then I want to get Bob Hoy's response to those remarks, and then on with Bob Hoy for some of his own ideas about, uh, about these very challenging and very interesting markets. So, Justin, can you go ahead and play Dick Beauvais' uh, clip right now? Well, let's put today's big sell-off in perspective, given the uncertainty here with the dead ceiling in Europe. Dick Beauvais is an analyst at Rokedale Securities. He joins us today on the Fast Line. Dick, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, your note was uh, provocative today. Uh, let me put it that way. You said uh, you would recommend suspending trading. What exactly do you mean? What sort of time frame are you talking about? What kind of trading are you advocating stepping away from? Well, I'm, I'm basically asking people to get out of the market, to, to get to liquidity, to put themselves in a position where they can be defensive and it's pretty hard to figure out how to be defensive when um, defensive generally meant buying U.S. Treasuries or putting money into uh, bank deposits. But to the degree that one can get liquid, I think that that's uh, absolute necessity because I believe that what we're dealing here uh, is much more than a political issue. I think we're dealing finally with some of the core problems that the United States uh, financial system faces, I mean the government faces, because these politicians may say that we can pay the debt, but of course we cannot pay the debt. To assume that by borrowing money we can meet our payments and that's paying the debt is, of course, inappropriate. So we know that the government cannot meet its debt obligations on its own revenue generation capability. We know that the Federal Reserve is willing to play around with the dollar, i.e. QE1, QE2, where they don't care if they debase the currency. And we know that the United States has lost the ability to compete worldwide by producing products which can be sold to eliminate uh, the trade deficit. And it seems to me that we're finally reaching that point where we're going to have to come to grips with those issues. And I think that the answer to those issues is not going to be you know, uh, basically pushing off the debt ceiling uh, problem till uh, January of 2013, right. and it's not going to be you know a four trillion dollar cut in the deficit if anyone were to do it. I think the problem is that we're restructuring the global financial system away from the United States. I think that's the core issue that we're dealing with. So, Dick, let me ask you: You say go to liquidity. At the same time, within that same note, you you go through the various traditional safe havens. All of them have a reason to not be in. The them. What is the safe haven today? Do you not? I mean, when you say move to liquidity, because this is a very drastic move that you're advocating investors take. 
Yeah, well, what do they move that's into? The problem. We don't know. What you don't know. So when you say move to liquidity, what is it? A new one has to be developed because you can't basically say, "Gee, I'm worried about the treasuries, and therefore I'm going to go buy a whole bunch of short-term treasuries," or "I'm worried about the credibility of the U.S. government, and therefore I'm going to go put my money into some FDIC guaranteed deposit." The issue is, where do you go? You can't go to gold, you can't go to Swiss francs, you can't go to the euro, and in my view, you can't go to the dollar. So what is going to have to happen is once we get a short-term resolution to what the immediate problem is, we're going to start to see the creation of the new safe haven, and it's not going to be based upon the United States financial system, which has been the global financial system for the last 50 to 70 years. We're going through a major sea change in the whole structure of how the financial system is going to operate over the next, who knows, 50, 60 years. And Dick, it's Tim, that, that's great news, I think, even for the United States, to be honest with you. But let's talk about the short term now, because we're coming on some deadlines. And let's talk about the banks you cover. There's been a lot of tactical movement of, of banks being very cautious about their money market exposure, because that's the first place that's going to seize up. So give us some insight into the guys that, one, you think are best protected, have the most you know, cash reserves and liquidity in the short term. Because you know, I think no matter what camp you're on in terms of what the politicians do over the next couple of days, we all know that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury can maneuver over the next six weeks probably. So talk about the banks that could be squeezed and people could really see how vulnerable they are. Well, the banks that are going to be squeezed less are the ones that people hate the most. I mean, Citigroup is sitting here with, uh, you know, capital, which is about, uh, you know, I think it's $90 billion. I forget the exact number. I think they have $70 billion in capital and $90 billion in cash. It's, it's some, some, some relationship like that where they have more cash on the balance sheet right now than they have capital. And if we throw in what the uh, you know government bonds are that they own or, or the government guaranteed types of security, I think they're up to something like $360 billion on a $2 trillion balance sheet, which is supposedly liquid if you accept the fact that owning U.S. Treasury gives you liquidity. The banking system overall has $1.7 trillion backed up by the government in one fashion or another, either the backup on Fannie and Ginny uh, agency uh, uh, debt or the uh, mortgage-backed securities which are held or the, uh, you know, basic direct loans to the Treasury. There's no way that the banks can protect themselves if there's going to be a downgrading of the debt, which actually results in a 25 to 50 basis point increase in the yield on that debt. Dick, but, real, real quick, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but let's say there's a resolution uh, tomorrow magically. You, let's just tie a bow on this. Would you tell people don't get caught up in the euphoria of what will probably be a rally in the S&P and just to stay away for the foreseeable future? Right. In other words, basically, there is no resolution in the short run. In other words, you can come up, as I said, with a solution in which you say, okay, we're going to push off the debt ceiling uh, to January of 2013. We're going to take $4 trillion out of the deficit, but that's not a resolution. The resolution is how are we going to solve the, the, the underlying problems which gave rise to the huge deficit, which gave rise to this debt, which now has to start to be being paid back, which gave rise to the fact that the Fed is willing to base the currency, and, and if we think we're going to get a rally that is going to resolve all problems simply because of a quick near-term solution, I think that's in, incorrect. Dick, um, let me just push back a little bit because some people out there might think that you sound like Chicken Little a little bit because the trading call that you're making, it almost sounds like you're recommending people go to liquidity and get out of stocks for an extended period of time because the fact of the matter is all these problems that you're citing are going to exist for a long time. Things don't happen overnight. And also in terms of the U.S. and, and the dollar, for instance, being a safe haven, the world's currency, I mean, that people, countries have been moving away from the U.S. dollar for some time. This is a trans that happens over decades, perhaps, not overnight. So it sounds like you could potentially be on the sidelines for a very long time. Well, you're certainly going to be on the sidelines for a short period, and I definitely believe the sky is falling, so you can call me Chicken <laughs> okay. Little if you'd like. But the, the net effect is that, uh, you know, if, if people think that by, by sol in order to solve the problem with treasuries, that the safe haven is to go run and buy treasuries, 
or U.S. guaranteed money in a bank. Uh, it, it's kind of ludicrous, isn't it? I mean, basically, there has to be a restructuring to a new safe haven, which is, in fact, solid. You can't have your safe haven based upon a country which is bankrupt, i.e., cannot pay its debt, a country that's willing to debase its currency, a country which cannot produce goods that can be sold internationally so that we can have a trade surplus. That's not the base on which you build a global financial system, but it is the base on which we're operating at the present time. It's going to change, and it's not going to change in a fashion which is conducive to uh, benefits to the United States government or financial system. Let me ask you this quick question, Dick. What does your portfolio look like? Are you in on cash? Yes. You are. Your personal portfolio, you are in 100% cash, pretty yes. much. Okay. Call him, Dick Bobet, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Richard <check>. Little. <laughs> uh, Dick, great to speak with you. Dick Bobet over at Rokedale Securities. All right, folks, you just heard uh, Dick Bouvet, and now we have Bob Hoy, who, who certainly uh, will have his own thoughts about uh, Dick's uh, remarks. Bob, you just heard what Dick had to say. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, he was, he said, came out with a cautionary statement in July. Looking at the S&P, that was nice timing. And then, uh, as I understand, he was a little more positive today. Yeah, he's been uh, positive. He turned positive on on banks. Uh, he you yeah. couldn't tell it from that uh, clip you just heard. Uh, he uh, he on our on our show uh, his live remarks a few minutes ago was uh, you know to the effect that uh, there are several of these banks that have enormous amounts of cash liquidity, uh, yeah. cash in excess of their net worth, and and, and yeah. I, don't know, I have to go back and look at the yeah. Well, that now. yeah, I did that that part the. Um, the cash position in banks is typical of a post-bubble uh, contraction, whereby these guys <laughs> get shocked into being frightened, and uh, the, the Federal Reserve can provide any amount of re re reserves, but if the commercial bank or the investment bank is not lending it out, then you get into the old pushing-on-a-string routine. But on, you know, Jay, this is... A fairly methodical uh, post-bubble condition. Mm -hmm. The uh, stock boom to 2007, uh, late 2007, was accompanied by a very good boom in real estate and in commodities. Whereas the stock bubble, the tech bubble in 2000, was not accompanied by those. So. The action in 2000, up to 2007, had all the signposts of a great financial mania, of which this would have been number six. Uh, 1929 was number five, and the South Sea bubble in 1720 was number one. So the to go back to uh, 2007, we expected the yield curve to begin to change in May of that year, and it did, and that that would be fall. Well, first of all, it was inverted with the boom, and typically a boom will run 14 to 16 months against an inverted yield curve. Month 16 was June of 2007, and the yield curve began to change to uh, deepening in May, and that was the start of the credit contraction, which in early June, when the credit spreads were then widening, our statement was that it was the beginning of the greatest train wreck in the history of credit. So now, that was uh, that one. Bob, that was back in June of 2007? Yeah, yeah. And then a couple you had the high for the yeah. stock market in, in uh, October, and then you went into a classic post-bubble crash for stocks. The, uh, the length of it in U.S. was, uh, was longer It it didn't clear the markets until March of '09, and that extra leg down in the U.S. I think was due to the markets discovering just how uh, the diabolical the Obama administration would be towards the economy. Hmm. So at any rate, now we are have been enjoying the first business expansion out of the post-bubble crash, and on our work on a special model we have. Now, the first week in January, this thing clicked in and said that the rising markets then for stocks and commodities would surge up to a terrific blow-off, a speculative blow-off, 
uh, perhaps around April. So mm-hmm. that indeed happened. So you had uh, most of the commodities had their high late April, early May, uh-huh. and then same with the stock market. So then you had a, a, a crack in it, and then more recently, the latest one. So on the stock market, immediately uh, we were looking for a rally into uh, around Labor Day. You know, there's a seasonal move there, plus the stock market got oversold. And this is pulling up some of the commodities like copper and things like that. So orthodox investments look good at the moment, but not for too long because uh, you've had a terrific widening of credit spread. So what I would like to do then is, again, get back to Dick Bouvet, is that perhaps his positiveness about the banks now uh, seemed to include a comment about how liquid they were. But in the early 1930s, the banks stopped lending to business and commerce, and we're buying uh, treasuries, longer-dated treasuries, so that when the real hard part of that deflation came in beginning of May 1931, uh, they then were in such precarious state that they had to sell their treasuries. So then that's where you had uh, a sharp rise in long uh, treasury rates in the face of falling prices, and that was just because liquidity disappeared. So and then also, Bouvet uh, mentioned something about trying to find a place to put money now. Right. And on that one, history provides a reliable guide, and that is that in a post-bubble condition, the careful money goes to the most liquid items. That's treasury bills in the senior currency and gold. Um uh, those are the most liquid items, and this is, of course, part of the. Well, I'm, I've been maintaining for uh, a couple of years now that the the reason why T bill rates are so low, it's not due to Federal Reserve policy. It's mm-hmm. due to the fact that there's enough scared money out there at any given quarter that is sip sitting parked in U.S. Treasury bills because it's the most liquid place. So, market forces have t- driven down T bill rates to extremely low, and also. In the hit in in uh, July and August to the stock markets, when gold really soared, the t the T bill rate fell in half to zero point zero zero whatever. Yeah, and there was no change in the U.S. dollar index. So we're going to stay with the tried and true recipe rather than try to guess things with our own imagination. Right, is that the safe place to be? Is in the most liquid items, that's T-bills in the senior currency. The U.S. dollar is still the senior currency, and gold is still gold. So yeah. that's well, where we would be. Um, well, Dick Dick would, uh, you know, he was arguing against T-bills, against treasuries, because... Yeah. because well, he's hung up on the, on the fact that he thinks that maybe the Federal Reserve and the Treasury can still continue to depreciate the dollar, but I don't think that's possible because... We're in, and he indicated the possibility of a big change going on. Well, there is a big change going on. And this has been the uh, brutal expansion of government in supposedly free company, countries. Right. And it's become virtually an experiment in unlimited government. And, of course, that requires unlimited financing and the... Typical ways that a federal government raises money is through taxation, of course. Mm-hmm. And with the debt ceiling argument, the Republican Party, with the backbone from the Tea Party, said no to a tax increase. Well, the left couldn't believe what hit them, yeah. but they've said no to tax increases. Yeah. And the other way that the state raises money is through debt issue. And uh, the latest rally in Tea bonds uh, out of, uh, what, God, it was January when we had the buy, up until recently when we had the sell, they technically became rather overbought. So we're in, watching this with interest because you have uh, another typical thing from the post-bubble condition, which is a spreading revulsion for long bo- a longer debt. And uh, this is more acute recently with uh, Greek uh, two-year notes getting up to what, a 50 or 60% yield? Hmm. And so we're having the bond revulsion. So it's interesting that as this, the latest rally in 
and the Treasury bond future became overbought and ended the move, there is a possibility that this could become quite a decline in price with interest rate rising strictly because of uh, dim- diminishing liquidity and the capacity of uh, funds to own longer-dated uh, governments mm-hmm. because you've seen the sovereign debt mess. And since uh, May, there's been a tremendous uh, widening of credit spreads as corporate bond prices have uh, declined and yields gone up and spreads are widening. That has got worse faster than we thought it would be. So that's the. There is a possibility that the bond revulsion could spread to U.S. Treasuries, and that would close the second uh, vehicle for raising money for the federal government. Well, we're the third not, one. Excuse me. We're certainly not seeing anything yet in the U.S. Treasuries. If anything, the Treasuries have have continued to look strong. Why? Why is that? Well, just a minute now. Yeah. The long Treasury bond soared up to an extremely overbought condition mm-hmm. and is correcting from there. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay? That was a week or so ago. Yeah. So anyways, and it is possible that this would be the start of a severe decline in long Treasury bond prices, hmm. in which case the window will be beginning to close against that form of funding. Okay. Okay. Now, then, the next stage of form of federal funding has been just straight currency depreciation, where uh, that's the finest form of state theft. And uh, you've got the dollar is technically making a bottom against most currencies, and it's close to starting what we think will be a serious rise. The reason why the U.S. dollar would rise, of course, is the same reason for why it rose in the ninth, in the 2008 um, panic, mm-hmm. it's because the whole world is short U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's traders. Now, on the other hand, in a financial mania, whether it was in in focused in the financial capital when it when it is currently uh, New York, prior to that it was London, and the thing that happens with that kind of a mania although everybody talks about the stock market side, there's a lot of debt issued in the financial capital of the world that after the mania has to be repaid. And so in earlier days uh, where London would lend money to Bolivia or Turkish banks or Egyptian banks in the mania, that then those uh, lenders had to repay that money and service their debt into London in sterling. Only this time around, it's New York and U.S. dollars. So even if you had, say, only 60% of the debt underwritten, due and payable in New York, that's the majority, and that's what you need. So then any post-bubble contraction, uh, the world swings to having extreme problems in repaying debt. So then the, uh, in the future, uh, you hear you will have not just traders who are actually short dollars, but you got all of those bond issues out there that every quarter they'll be repaying interest or, re- or retiring the debt in New York. So this is where you can say that one of the features of every post-bubble contraction is that the senior currency becomes eventually chronically strong against most other, com- com- most other currencies and most commodities for most of the time. Right. So okay, well, uh, this is still highly probable. Yeah. And if we go into a liquidity crisis this fall, it, let's face it, the widening of credit spreads through the summer was quite a big warning. So I think that the the means by which the ambitious government has been funding itself through increasing taxation is going to be closed, through uh, increasing bond issues has the probability of being closed, Mm -hmm. and then through just plain uh, state theft or depreciation, that opportunity, that privilege may be denied by market forces as well. It's going to be exciting times. And the other thing, Jay, about this is please note that I haven't said anything about the genius of policymakers. 
Yeah, I, I want to get to that, Bob, but I want to ask you before we get to that, um, yeah, the new bull market on common sense, as you put it. But, bef- <laughs> but before we get to that, I want to ask you then, so you're seeing a stronger dollar relative to other currencies, but correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you believe that gold will be stronger than the dollar. In other words, if we look at um, John Not Andrew, right away. We've, uh, we, uh, my colleague had the high price for gold in the latter part of August. That was a target made in January, and that it was also reach a high momentum, which it reached. So we're now in a price where, place where gold will correct against U.S. dollars and most other currencies. So for the short time, uh, Bob, for the short term, yeah. you would be out of gold and into, dollar, into dollars at this moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, as a matter of fact, I'm I'm short. Uh, add a little bit more to my shorts in gold today and gold stocks. Okay. So, anyways, but here we want to go into the real world, which is the real price of gold, and uh, the um, costs of gold mining fluctuate hugely on a business cycle. Uh, you know, the price of building materials goes up, the price of energy costs go up. And this is why gold mining doesn't do so particularly good in a business cycle because guys mining copper will do better. So what we do is keep track of the real price of gold, which traditionally you would take the price of gold and divide it by the consumer price index. But since the Clinton era, the calculation of the CPI is suspect. But then it's more fun if you compare it to commodities. So... We created our own commodity index to be very close to that of the Economist All Items, and it is fairly close. So, in in a in in going back over the huge sweep of history, since the advent of central banking and the first bubble that came out in 1720, the real price of gold declines with every great bubble to an, a significant low. And then once the mania is over, then the real price of gold heads up. And typically, a post-bubble contraction can last for 20 or 25 years with the usual three- to four-year business cycle coming and going. Yeah. And that business cycle, like, as I said, we probably completed the first business expansion out of the crash. And uh, so we'll look at gold, which on our gold divided by commodities index had, which we think is a secular low, of 143 in May of 2007. It then soared up to over 500 with the crash that ended in March of 2009. And then with the rebound in financial markets and commodities, that then declined to 300 uh, back in February. And then in April is when the real price of gold, divided by commodities, uh, b- made its breakout and set the uptrend. And that then gave the warning that the financial markets were going to come under uh, some severe weather. Right. So now, and we thought there may be in a year and a half from May that the our gold, real price of gold would be up to 500 well a, week, a couple of weeks ago it hit 485 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now what this means is that gold is outperforming crude oil and crude oil is a proxy for energy prices so prosperity would be improving in the gold mining sector when the gold real price goes up but then the problem is now that there you know, uh, the chances are the New York Stock Exchange stocks will be heading down on a cyclical bear market. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you've got a cyclical bull market for gold's real price. Right. So then the gold share people, you just have to suffer this out, that when the big market in New York's going to go down, gold shares will go down. So, And that's what's happening recently here okay uh, okay bob but the 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 point about that though and what i'm telling my subscribers is that they do well to heed what you're saying to listen to what you're saying and cash out of some of their gold shares now build some cash because yep. if the underlying fundamentals are improving and the profits keep improving for these gold mining companies but they get trashed the baby yep. gets thrown out with the bathwater if they've got some liquidity they've got some cash they can buy some gold shares for the next swing up at bargain yep. basement prices is that your read oh yeah 
you know, let's talk about Homestake in 1929. Well, of course, then all the tech stocks and big market stocks were way outperforming Homestake, which was the premium producer. But their shares through the first part of 1930, you could have bought them for $9 and under. The low with the crash was, I think, 8 and an eighth. So with the boom uh, in 1929, their cost of mining went up such that they reported a loss in 1929 because gold was fixed at $20.67 an ounce. But then in the, in, the, in the crash, their cost of mining went down such that their earnings started to go up. So eventually the, the, the move was uh, from $9.00. And by the time you got to the end of 1932, where this was before Roosevelt started screwing around with the price of gold, uh, their earnings were up something like 130%, and the price of the stock was up 130%. Then on the full, uh, to 32. Now also, the bottom of the stock market was in 1932, where the Dow had given up something like 85% of its value. So this is what we're looking for here is that from the high first gold stocks uh, a few weeks back, you can go into a, a severe liquidity problem this fall, whereby traders will have to sell out the good ones um, because the bad ones are going down so fast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this will set up the next buying opportunity. And then... So we went through that a couple of bumps in the 1930s, and Homestake eventually got up to uh, recollect about $65 Mm -hmm. on a $9 purchase. And then those days they were paying out virtually all what they earned by way of dividends. So Mm -hmm. all through the 1930s, it paid a $4.50 dividend. And that was at a time, Bob, when the actual purchasing power of the dollar was going up too. Yeah, the purchasing power was going up, so uh, with gold, it was a fabulous place to be. But, you know, this sort of how Mother Nature runs the economy, not Keynes or his disciples. But... Yeah, let's talk about that, because, Bob, I know you believe that, in fact, what's happening in the gold mining industry, this real price of gold, which, in other words, the, what a, an ounce of gold will buy is increasing, it increases the gold mining profits. You see capital going into gold mining industry and the exploration companies and, and in the producers, and we're seeing a growing number of new companies coming online producing gold now. It's an exciting yeah. time for this industry. But you see this as not only being a way for individuals to profit, but also it's a way that Mother Nature reliquifies the system. Dick Bouvet oh, yeah. Dick Bouvet was saying we can't go to gold, and he gave his reasons, technical reasons. You're yeah. saying not only can we, but we will. Mother Nature will make sure that we do. Oh, oh yeah. So explain Mother that. Nature how does that, and how does... Mr. Margin will do it. But let's look at you've had the greatest financial bubble in history on in size and probably enthusiasm. So. There was a huge amount of debt expanded, commercial paper expanded, and then they had. Let's just talk about the ordinary credit instruments. Excuse me, Bob, but we would say. Let me let me just interject here that we would that would have culminated in 2007, more or less. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. Okay. So, anyways, in any here's the other thing that well is that it helps to understand inflation and deflation if you talk to credit markets. So mm-hmm. inflation used to be called an inordinate expansion of credit. Then right. it's easy to figure out deflation, which is an inordinate contraction of credit. Right. So then what you've got here, and then with that, prices go up when credit is expanding, and then prices go down when credit is contracting. So you ha- you have this age-old. It's methodical. So then as, and they cry about it, you know, uh, Bouvet was saying something about the banks are hoarding cash. Yes, yes. And then you've got uh, credit contracting, and you've here you've got another outbreak in the last few years of the uh, policymakers attempting to make a credit contraction go away by throwing more credit at it which has never been successful in the past, but unfortunately, each policymaker 
when he comes up with the idea, thinks it's original. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but Mother Nature behind the scene is arranging things. Now, I've mentioned the ordinary instruments of credit, like bond, ordinary corporate bonds and, and commercial paper and that sort of stuff. But then you've had the unusual stuff that was invented on this one, uh, subprime mortgage bonds, all that stuff. Now, a lot of that just plain disappearing, and eventually a lot of corporate bonds will go default as well. But in the meantime, credit is contracting, and let's both of us agree that the stimulus really didn't work. So it's another example of throwing credit at a credit contraction, and the contraction continues. But in the meantime, with the gold's real price going up, and in our calculation, the low was 143 in 2007, and now we're looking at, let's say it's corrected recently, maybe a 460 number. So what happens, and as you were saying, Jay, uh, the business gets more profitable and produces more. Even on expiration bets, you then have the valuation of expiration of, uh, you know, mineral, mineral deposits improve so such that become ore or even high-grade ore. Mm-hmm. So this is Mother Nature raising the real price of gold, which then improves the production of gold, and that gold will get into the banking system no matter how many Keynesians there are around. Right. And, and here's the other thing, is that it works every time. Yeah. You have, uh, since uh, the 1720 bubble, the sharp decline in the real price of gold as the bubble concludes, and then a 20 to 25-year typical increase in the real price. And here's the other part, a bit of anecdotal stuff, Jay, is that the greatest gold rushes in history, um, 1849 in the U.S., also Australia, and 1895, 1897 with the Klondike, those occurred at the end of a depression, the depression bottomed, I think, in 1844. The stock bubble then was 1825. Mm-hmm. And that's the time when you have the highest real price for gold, and it's been up for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you also have high unemployment. So it was a natural. People go looking for gold. Yeah. But that didn't happen with the depression bottom in the 1940s because the the war, World War II was on, and it distorted everything. But you, you still had an um, uh, a long, uh, you know, pretty good improvement in the real price of gold. And then, yeah. of course, once the expansion out of 1946 started, then the real price started coming down. So okay. Mother Nature runs the deal, not okay. the policymakers. It's the markets that decide. The markets are more powerful than policymakers uh, who tend not to have common sense. Yeah, but sort of had the chuckle here. You talked a minute ago about how these central bankers think they were the first ones to think about uh, printing money, and of course we've been, uh, you know, to overcome the deflationary, uh, natural deflationary uh, momentum of markets, and and certainly, you know, we've been told all about how this great economist from Princeton named Ben Bernanke uh, is such an expert on how to how to overcome deflation, and he is going to print money like never before and do it smarter yeah. than anyone else, and it doesn't look like it's working very well, does it? No. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Bernanke is a very selective scholar. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, Milton Friedman was with Anna Schwartz on that book about the, the contraction in the 1930s. They, they all dream up this idea that the Federal Reserve was tight after 1929. And this uh, happens because in most co- economists' eyes, the Federal Reserve system is perfection. Yeah. And that it didn't prevent the early 1930s contraction. They can't admit that the system failed. They have to say that the guy's running it. Didn't blew it enough job. Okay, but if you read the newspapers rather than the textbooks, because the textbooks edited out reality, right? that in the August of 1929, when the Fed raised the discount rate from 5 to 6%, since then, interventionist economists have said that was the problem. If they hadn't raised it then, you wouldn't have got the, the depression. But... The Federal Reserve explained, and this is the interesting part, is that the New York Times carried the story, that they were tightening money to Wall Street, which was becoming speculative, 
And at the same time, they were taking steps to ease money to Main Street. Yeah. So they were, they were on to the fact that it was a runaway market. Then in the crash itself, the uh, New York Fed was much bigger than all other chapters put together, just as it is now. Well, the Fed opened the discount window and uh, bought bonds out of the market, and it, to an extent that it exceeded its, its authority by a factor of six times. So it threw a lot of money into the market. Early 1930, the Fed, in an announcement, patted itself on the back by saying that they'd met the panic in the typical classical way by discounting liberally. Huh. So then here's the, another one, this, and it's in a, a Barron's editorial in 1932, and it pointed out that, and I haven't got the whole quote in front of me, but the gist of it was that every anti-deflationary measure taken by the Federal Reserve has been seen not to be successful, but because of the oh deflationary vortex going on in the bond market. It was I knew they used the term vortex. Yeah. So, Bob, Bob unfortunately, have, we're out of time. Yeah. I, I I wanted to ask you if you can take uh, thirty seconds. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but we really got to move on. One thing here about uh, the bull market in common sense. Just comment yeah. on that briefly and why you think the Tea Party oh, the uh, is a good thing. Through, yeah, the public's going to see through. They're going to realize the policymakers are, are spinning dust and uh, it's not working. And so that's where the public sort of have the scales taken off their eyes and they look at it and say, this, is, this, is, this isn't working and that's what I'm calling the new bull market in common sense, in common sense. when it comes. So, again, it will be the market that opens people's eyes, and even eventually yeah. perhaps some of those Ph.D. economists from Princeton, Yale, and Harvard will get it. Do you think that's possible? No, there's no hope for them. You can't go take a Ph.D. in, in common sense. They don't grant them. <laughs> no, I know. My mother, who finished her sophomore year in high school, has it, however, yeah. and uh, a lot of other common people have it. The guys that have PhDs behind their names yeah, from prestigious universities. There'll be some universities. terrific opportunities, Jay, and, and no. some of the junior stocks oh, as well. Absolutely. I wish we had more time to talk about it, Bob. We'll have you back on sometime in the near future, but we are plumb out of time. No Very more time day. right now, so we'll have you on. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right, up, uh, right back uh, for the wrap-up today with Roger Wiegand, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Thanks, Bob. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Merrix Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrix and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrix's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper gold rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi billion dollar deposits. With its $6 million plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www.rypatchgold.com. 
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, we just heard from Bob Hoy, and he uh, once again has reiterated his views as to why the markets are going to win, ultimately, that the movement towards deflation is going to take place, no matter how much Ben Bernanke tries to fight it. And we're seeing fights against deflation all over the place, and Europe are not uh, any different, in fact. We're seeing growing insolvency problems everywhere, Greece, of course, and then the, the pig countries and we're seeing also uh some real backlash uh about um, you know bailing out the german people for example are becoming very upset well i'm really glad to have roger wiegand back roger's not been with me that much he's been traveling i've been traveling one thing or another but roger is a partner of mine and uh roger has some things to say about the what's going on in germany now welcome back roger thank you thank you jay <clears throat> roger uh, talk to us a little bit about what's going on in germany i did see uh, that uh, uh, that uh, Merkel is starting to run into some real internal political problems with her willingness to work with the, with the French and the other uh, you know powers that be to try to keep the euro alive um, and keep it alive. Let's just let's say not alive and well, but alive. Talk to us about what's going on in Germany. Well, the one world, there's the IMF, the uh, Bank for International Settlements, the World Bank, and so on, in conjunction with the Federal Reserve and Treasury in the U.S., are desperate to try to keep Euroland afloat because if, in fact, it starts to unravel, the American banks are heavily involved uh, in credit in Europe, and they would take an additional beating, which would really cause Bernanke and company and the U.S. Treasury to have to pony up another tarp. And I don't think politically they can do it. Whether or not they could actually come up with the money is another question. It's really doubtful. Wait a minute. Let me ask you, Roger. Do you think who can't come up with the money? Do you think Bernanke would have trouble with another tarp, or are you talking about the uh, the Germans? I think both, really. In, in in Europe, first of all, by charter, within the Euroland community of nations, there's 17 involved. Uh, by charter, they're not the the Euroland Bank. The Eurobank is not allowed to loan them money directly. That's what it says directly in their charter. Now, what they're trying to do to skirt that problem is to originate some new bonds that are going to be backed by some questionable credit. Uh, some of it they were trying to get it from Finland, some from Germany, uh, uh, some from France. France and Germany are the two leaders, and the pressure remains primarily on Germany because they've got the biggest credit and they've got the ability to put it up. And, and that would probably help the IMF to save the deal. But within Germany itself, uh, Mrs. Merkel initially, uh, initially, several months ago, Jay, she was wanting to not do this. Yeah. She's on the side of the German taxpayers, but you know how politics works out. And what's, what has happened here is she's got people in her own party that are rebelling against this now. She doesn't have the votes to really pull this thing off to help out uh, the pig nations and go along with France yeah. and, and pony up the money. Right. So this big vote is going to be coming up here shortly on the 23rd of September, and if, in fact, this doesn't work out, the whole thing could unravel. Well, that's very interesting because Bob Hoy suggests that what's going on with the Tea Party is akin to what's going on within Germany and throughout Europe, and he says that this is a bull market. This is a sign of a bull market of, uh, 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 for common sense, a bull market in common sense. Um, so the Tea Party, I mean, so, so I also understand, Roger, there may be some 
issues uh, that are being tried in the courts. That is, some of these issues are are finding them uh, are finding their way into the legal system in Germany in terms of what is legal and what isn't legal. Any any thoughts on that? Yes, that's correct. Uh, we reported that some time ago, and what's what's happening now is some people with some power within Germany are suing and saying this is illegal and it's going to the German High Court and the case is going to be open in the month of September. I don't have the exact date on that, but this is getting very interesting because now you've got this court case opening questioning the ability of the Euroland people to take German credit and also we're having to vote in Parliament on the 23rd. I think that uh, everything is coming to a head very swiftly and everybody is arguing back and forth, and it's going to be a big mess. Oh. And if, in fact, uh, you know, the, the, the news and the media uh, controls a lot of the stock market in Germany, just like the United States, yeah. and everything goes sour, and I think it's going to, uh, the German stock market is going to drop. And I think that's going to have a major effect both in Asia and, and within the United States. Well, it's really interesting because let's say that Germany doesn't pony up and the French don't pony up more money to bail out the, the weaker sisters in the in, in the Euroland, uh, then you can all, almost see the whole thing imploding, can't you? I mean, if, absolutely. And to a great extent, our bank. And one of the questions I didn't get around to asking Dick Bouvet when he was on earlier, whether or not he wasn't concerned about the bank's interest uh, in uh, you know in in various uh, European. Uh, uh, in, in the European markets. Well, Roger, what has this got to do with gold then? Gold is really rising dramatically. Hoy was looking for a pullback to around 1670, something like that. It was around the 50-day moving average. He said that about maybe a week ago or a few days ago. What are your thoughts on gold with one minute left only? If you can take 30 seconds to talk about uh, what's your short-term and longer-term view of gold at the moment. Well, it's going back up again now, Jay. We've, we've completed our standard ABC correction, which was a deep one, and it almost hit Bob Hoy's number. But today, December, gold futures are $1,837. Uh, we're up almost 60 bucks in a trading range. Uh, we're going back and forth and rising. Silver, the same thing. Uh, I see that uh, we're going to have to redo all the work, come up with some new numbers, because gold right now today is resisting at a high of 1845, call it 1848.50. Uh, after, the, after the holiday, uh, Labor Day coming up, I expect the whole thing to open up, the metals to really start to push, and the shares, both in silver and gold, to go very much higher. Okay, that's all the time we've got, unfortunately, Roger. Uh, next week, folks, I'm expecting to have on with me once again Vincent Bugliosi. This time he's going to talk about his number one New York Times bestseller uh, a few years back. It's uh, called The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder. Well, if nothing else, this should be a very controversial topic, uh, and I think it's going to be a fascinating one. So don't. Uh, we hope that you'll tune in with us next week. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my senior executive producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.